everybody, and welcome to the Big Bass Podcast. His name is Terry Battisti. And his name is Ken Duke. Our producer and engineer is uh, Nathan Benson. The title of this episode is Harden, and we're going to tell you the amazing story of the world record smallmouth bass that came from Florida. <laughs> you mispronounced that, Terry. It's Florida. <laughs> My home state, born here, live here. You're going to have to drag me out in a bag. Uh, yeah, that's right, Florida. You know, and not just one world record smallmouth, but multiple world record smallmouths, all from the Sunshine State. You know, who knew? That's, yeah, exactly. Who knew? <laughs> well, you so, and I did. And at the end of this show, everybody watching is going to be I don't know. I like to think a little bit smarter, maybe just a little bit more in the grips of bass mania. But uh, yeah, Florida, you don't, you don't think of Florida as a smallmouth bass state. Well, maybe that's because you weren't around in the 1930s and the 1940s and even earlier. Yeah, I mean, they had they were planting bass everywhere all over the world. Largemouth, smallmouth. I mean, it, you know. In the, in, in the late 1800s, they were spreading them from the Midwest to, you know, the, the Northeast and, and out to California. Uh, same thing with, with smallmouth. I mean, it, they were doing the exact same thing. You know, California got its first plants of uh, smallmouth bass, I believe it was in the 1920s, through rail. And they went into Trinity Lake and uh, some of the other lakes in Northern California. So, I mean, it's not unreasonable to to, to to think that Florida, why not try the bucket biology and see if they, they, they last down there? Yeah, you know, uh, people are not maybe as aware of bucket biology as a way to spread the gospel of bass fishing as they should be. <laughs> because uh, if you restrict, for example, the largemouth bass to just its native region, you're talking about east of the Mississippi, and, and you're mostly talking about the south. Uh, the reason the largemouth bass is the most widespread game fish in the world is because of guys like Spencer Fullerton Baird, the first chief of fisheries for the United States and, and one of the early curators of the Smithsonian Museum. Uh, when he was the chief of fisheries for the U.S., he had people loading up fish of all different kinds, freshwater, saltwater, cold water, warm water, loading them up in barrels, putting them on trains and sending them west in the 1860s and 70s. And whenever they saw, whenever they stopped to pick up fuel or water, they would just dump these barrels into the into the rivers there. And sometimes the fish would make it, and sometimes they would float up within a few yards. Baird did not care. He was trying to spread food and and some sporting options to the west. Yeah. You know, and, and, and Henshaw writes all about that in his books. You know, I mean, he, in fact... Henshaw took it upon himself as an ichthyologist to, to even, you know, be a consultant to the fisheries as to, you know, new places to, to put largemouth or, or smallmouth. Yeah, the first guy to, to raise some of these fish in, in a captive situation. So, yeah, it's uh, – and, you know, and Henshaw is, is one of the first guys to really – bringing things back to just the smallmouth for a moment and giant smallmouth. I think he may be the earliest reference to how big – a smallmouth bass could get. In his book, uh, More About the Black Bass, which was published in 1889, uh, he talks about the biggest smallmouth he ever heard of or, or found about. 
And, and it was an eight pound, 10 ounce smallmouth that came from Long Pond, also known as Glen Lake in New York. And, and he referenced that as the, the biggest that was out there. Which isn't, I mean, that's 100% believable, right? Absolutely. I mean, sure. There's no doubt in my mind that that fish probably came out of Glen Lake or Long Pond, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but as soon as we start going down the line a little bit here, things are going to get get a little squirrely. <laughs> yeah, you know, you don't see the record change that much until suddenly you get into the 1930s, and uh, and and smallmouth bass pop up in places where we don't often think of them today. In fact, let's talk about uh, 1932. Um. Because let's look, we'll go back a little bit less. We'll go back to 31. Because in 1931, a guy named Walter Hardin, who we're going to tell you all about Walter Hardin in a little bit. This, that's why we call this episode Hardin. Uh, in 1931, fishing in central Florida, Lake County, which is the county just north of me, um, he was fishing Lake Apopka, still a very popular bass lake here in central Florida. And he caught a 12-pound, 12 12-ounce 12 smallmouth bass that became the world record that's a big fish that's a really big fish a really i big, wonder you know, what billy what i wonder what billy westmoreland would say about that well <laughs> I, I i'm pretty sure it's a good thing billy didn't see that fish uh that fish or, came along or Harden, and, for that matter <laughs> well <laughs> uh billy billy was born about that time so he, he, i was five years before billy was born i believe so billy didn't get to see that fish the 12 12 that Harden caught in 1931, but uh, a beast, a beast. And and just a year later, almost a year later to the day, Terry, Walter Harden broke his own world record uh, on the same body of water with a 14-pound smallmouth bass. That's a giant. That? How about that? Take that, Florida. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. It's the only record that you've never held. <laughs> Florida, you know, Florida bass fishing is the best in the country, obviously. Uh, of course, somebody from Tennessee might argue that you have better smallmouth bass fishing. But obviously in the 30s, Terry, that wasn't the case. It was wide open down there. It was wide open pounders. down there. Well, you know, today if you look at the world records, you're going you're gonna to see a guy named David Hayes, who we will talk much, much, much more about in a few, future episode of the Big Bass Podcast. In fact, we're going to cover Hayes in three separate episodes. But uh, that record was 11 pounds, 15 ounces, and he caught it in a, a reservoir on the Tennessee-Kentucky border called Dale Hollow. And yep. uh, that's the record now, 11-15. So why isn't the 14 still the world record? Well, we're going to talk about that. But first, yep. I want everybody out there to know something very important, and that is that the idea of smallmouth bass in Florida is not as strange as you might think. Not nearly as strange as you might think. Uh, as Terry was was mentioning earlier, you know, if it weren't for bucket biology and the idea that, hey, I bet I bet those fish would do real good over here, then uh, then we wouldn't have bass in all the places we do now. And uh, smallmouth bass were first stocked in the state of Florida in about 1908. They were stocked in Lake County, the same county where Hardin caught his 12-pound, uh, 12 12-ounce 12 fish and his 14-pound fish. They were stocked in, in Leon County, uh, up near Tallahassee in about 1910. And they were stocked in uh, Hillsborough County, which is around the Tampa area, in about 1930. So 
Smallmouth bass were all over Florida. Beginning they were making the rounds. Making the rounds. Making the rounds. <laughs> and there was a weird theory proposed by an Episcopal minister in the 90s who said the reason these fish were getting around and palming up even in lakes <laughs> that were not they were, the fish were not stocked in, the reason they were popping up everywhere was because of the massive underground aquifer and, and waterways that we have in Florida. So the fish might be planted in in Big Lake Toho, but they could pop up in Okeechobee by just swimming through the underground railroad, as it were. <laughs> so, you know, that's the some of the some of the interesting theories. So smallmouth bass were stocked in Florida, Terry Batiste. Stocked in Florida. Yeah, I know. I've I've read that countless times. Uh, but the question is, is you could put a fish anywhere in the world, and if it's not the proper habitat for that fish, they're just going to fizzle out. And, and to that, I say habitat schmabitat. <laughs> Florida smallmouth bass were a thing. Fourteen pounders. <laughs> Fourteen pounders. Tens. Twelves. <laughs> Practically yeah. every cast. They were all over the place. Uh, I would wager to say they were as common as giant largemouth bass. How about that? Uh, I do not agree with that. Absolutely not. <laughs> and, and the guy who was making them so well known, the guy who was really popularizing it, the guy who even wrote a book about it, was a guy from Pennsylvania named Walter David Hardin. He was born in 1904 in Pennsylvania, and he loved fishing, apparently, from a very early age. Um, beginning in about 1925, he got into bass fishing, and he was going down to Florida in the wintertime, taking a break from his family's business. They, they had a barbecue restaurant, and they, they did food service stuff, but he would take a break in the winter, I guess, when business was slow for some reason, and uh, he would go down to Florida and become a fishing guide in the central Florida area uh, around the town of Oakland, which is very close to Lake Apopka. And, um, and that's how he'd spend his time. And he would catch some big, big fish, including the 12-12 that was a world record smallmouth, including the 14, which was a world record smallmouth. And in 1936, Terry, he wrote this little gem, which is called <laughs> How to Catch World's Record Bass. Terry, I think yep. you know you know what a bass geek I am. I, I I'm going to steal that the next time I'm you know down your way, <laughs> folks. This is written in 1936. the The cover price on it is 60 cents, which would Holy be crap. about which would be about 12 or 13 dollars today. Mm -hmm. So not dirt cheap, but almost dirt cheap even then. Well, considering it's like what a five by seven. Yeah, it's that. it's tiny. Yeah. It's tiny. I'm going to hold it up next to a three by five card here. It's it's basically Holy the crap. same size as the three by five card, and it's yeah. uh, 56 pages long. And and I've got hundreds of books on bass fishing, Terry, as you know. And this is my favorite. Well, of course it's your favorite. I mean, it's full of lies and embellishments. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I can get those anywhere. Um, those are common in the bass fishing. Uh, literature but this is my favorite because a it was so tough to come by 
I mean, I looked for years before I found this book. I have the second edition. Oh, wow. Um, I am still in search of the first edition. So anybody out there who might have a first edition, uh, send it to me. Send it to me. Don't let Terry, don't let it fall into his (laughs) evil clutches. He'll just lord it over me. Uh, But this is a very cool little book, and and it's absolutely a treasure of mine. My favorite book on bass fishing is is this one. And and there's some gems in here. There's some gems in here, some great lines. Um, Hardin was a fishing guide, as we said, and he used this book to, to market his fishing guide efforts. And he used this to, to sell some fishing lures. And, and this, was a, this was a pure marketing effort on his part, although he does do try to do quite a bit of educating. And some, some of my favorite lines from here are, uh, I have caught more smallmouth bass over nine pounds than anyone in the world. <laughs> Embellishments. <laughs> Why is it embellishment? <laughs> you know, we, we haven't gotten there yet. You're jumping the gun. Uh, on February 6, 1931, I broke the world's record for smallmouths with a 12 and three quarter pounder, length 29 inches, and girth 20 and a half inches. You caught that fish on a pikey minnow. Uh, another great one is on February 9, 1932, I again broke the record with a 14 pounder, length 28 inches, and girth 21 and a half inches. Both of these mounted bass were sent to Field and Stream and the American Museum of Natural History. New York City, and were officially recorded. Officially. Officially. Doesn't get better yeah. than that, Terry. Come on now. And he caught, I, the, I, he caught the 14 pounder on a 10 inch shiner. It's so disheartening that last week we were talking about H.W. Ross and all the pains that he went to sending this 23 pound, eight ounce fish up to New York to have it, you know, uh, looked at and, you know, to show people how big a large bass could get. You know, it, and he did it, it was almost the same 50, people almost fifty years before Hardin. Yeah, I mean, so I would hope that the ichthyologists would have learned a little bit by then. Um, and it just, oh my gosh, it just boggles my mind. I just, I, I'm besides myself sitting here, as you can tell. <laughs> that may just be the bourbon. Um, <laughs> another great line, you know, again, Harden, ever the fishing guide, ever the off-season fishing guide or in Florida, the on-season, the wintertime, he said, regardless of where you are fishing, don't tell the guide where to go or how to fish, but do what the guide says. Let the guide alone, and he will do all in his power to give you a lot of sport. You see, it is to his advantage that you catch fish, for if you don't, you may never come back, and he loses but deep down in his heart, he don't want you to catch too many unless you are a real sportsman and return them to the water. So grammar was not really Hardin's thing. It wasn't his forte, uh, but hey, there's early catch and release going on right there. So that's a, that's a good thing. There's a plus. Pretty amazing. That's one of the first references I, I have seen to catch and release in the world of bass fishing. You know, it used to be catch, batter, and fry, but... but He's talking about that. He's also giving mm-hmm. some some interesting advice. He uh, he said to catch big bass with artificial lures, you must work your lures slowly. His theory was that big fish couldn't move as fast as little fish, and so and even with the reels of the day, you could crank too fast for a big fish to catch up. Yeah, and I mean that's just I mean old school thinking, really old school thinking. 
because now we know that it doesn't matter if you've got a 14 to one gear ratio reel, uh, you're not going to outpace a, a bass that fish wants that bait. No. Yeah. We, and I've got, uh, biologist friends who tell me that even with our fastest reels these days, we cannot out crank a bass. No. Not a nope. chance of it. Not if they want it. Not if they want it. Yeah. Which is too often the problem, unfortunately. <laughs> My favorite yeah. part of the book though, Terry is probably right at the end. Right at the end, he's got a little section that he calls the best two lures I have ever used. And he doesn't tell you what they are. <laughs> to get that information, you have oh. to send him 25 cents. And, and then he'll, and therein that, lies my theory that he was a used car salesman, and in the wintertime, he couldn't sell cars, so he'd go to Florida to, to sell lures. Uh, we're we're going to get to that later, too, but it wasn't used cars. It was used boat, boats and motors. <laughs> okay. Worse. We, we are getting there. We are getting there, though. <laughs> um, but you know what? Uh, even though Walter Harden sounds like a bit of a, a, a self-promoter and uh, – kind of a, what do you call it, a bait and switch kind of guy. I'm going to sell you the book, but then if you want the information about the lures, you're going to have to send me 25 more cents during the Depression, for God's sake. Yeah. Um, maybe he's kind of a huckster, but um, let's get to the root of the problem here. Let's get to the root of the problem. We're making fun of, of these guys for their claims <laughs> of 12 and 14-pound smallmouth bass. Uh, at all, much less in the state of Florida. But but if we really want to get to the heart of the problem here, we got to talk some biology. Oh, absolutely. I mean, how big can they get? You know, where do they live? Where do they thrive? You know, that's, that's the that's the thing that we've got to. And, and you know, we used to think that the the, the fish thrived in the the TVA lakes. You know, Dale Hollow and Pickwick and in, in, in places like that. We thought that that's where the next world record was going to come out of. But, heck, three weeks ago, we get a double-digit fish out of Lake Erie. We have, a shocker. you know, yeah, that was a shocker. Uh, we have a lake out in Idaho called Dorshack Reservoir uh, that has produced numerous fish over nine pounds. There's Party Lake in Northern California that's produced numerous fish over nine pounds. And Trinity has produced fish over nine pounds, which those those three bodies of water are nothing like what we have at the TVA down here. And so, and, and so we're seeing that, that smallmouth bass can thrive in a lot of places. And, and one thing I think it's important to keep in mind is that um, the bass had really only been an important game fish for maybe 40 years, would you say? Close to, maybe close to 50 years at that point. And oh, so at that was, point, yeah. At that point, yeah. Now now it's the game fish of the world. But at that point, it had only been a, a serious game fish pursued by serious sportsmen for 40 or 50 years. And uh, it had not gotten the same level of attention uh, and study as the trout. Mm -hmm. uh, Rainbow brown brook trout. And, and so it was still very much in the development phase as far as uh, biology and, and ichthyology were concerned. And guys were just 
sort of starting to dig into that. So that's another big factor here. Yeah, I mean, how do you learn? You experiment. You don't know what the results are going to be, right? I mean, if it was, if you knew what the results were going to be, it, you wouldn't call it a, a, an experiment. Not an experiment. So, yeah, just a just a, a drill. Yeah. Um, but that's why they were putting smallmouth bass in these waters in Florida. Some guys had gone up north. They'd caught some smallmouth bass. They thought it was great. Had a yeah. terrific time with it. Uh, let's bring them down to Florida. And of yeah. course. No one had ever uttered the phrase invasive species at that point um, was unheard of. If you could spread smallmouth bass to the state of Florida or Cuba or wherever else, by God, let's get them there. Um, yep. We want them. Um, but so we're, mm -hmm. so what, what is a smallmouth thing? You know, I mean, how do you go about proving what a smallmouth bass is? And, of course, this is before there's DNA. This is before there's anything like that to really help you dial in and figure out what a smallmouth bass is. So the biologists of that era were defining smallmouth bass by things like scale count, by dorsal spine count. They were counting the number of scales along the cheek, the cheek. of the bass. They were counting the number of scales along the lateral line. Yep. Or, you know, where the where the dorsal fin comes in or the yeah, anal fin, a, the anal fan, all that stuff. You know, there's all sorts of different ways of doing it. And guess what? A smallmouth bass has a lot in common with a Florida largemouth bass, <laughs> if that's all you look at. Yeah. A lot in common. I mean, a lot, a lot in common. And if your only parameters for... For saying it's a largemouth bass versus a smallmouth bass are things like scale count and the separation of the dorsal spine, um, then you're going to make that mistake. Because these fish that, that guys were catching, and, and we're talking about multiple, multiple, multiple fish over 10 pounds that were being classified as smallmouth bass, many of them were examined by a biologist. Mm -hmm. Many of them were examined by an ichthyologist. But when those biologists and ichthyologists were working from the wrong blueprint, they were doomed to make that that error. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you look at scale count, between the smallmouth and the Florida, I mean, they are within statistical error. So you can't say based upon that one parameter, what what is what. But I would hope that, okay, this fish is green and this one is bronze, that that would have been something. I mean, and they, yeah. weren't, looking, they weren't looking at the, uh, you know, the jaw hinge with respect to the eyeball. I mean, when did they start doing that, Ken? Well, they were doing that even at this time, even in the 30s and 40s, but but I think there's also some variation in that. You know, there's always some variation because animals are individuals, too. And, and sometimes where it might be a little harder to identify where the hinge is, mm -hmm. and you really want it to be a smallmouth because if it's a smallmouth, it's a new freaking world record. Whereas if it's a largemouth, it's just a really good fish. <laughs> then you're going to err on the side of, of what you want it to be right. rather than what it probably is. Mm -hmm. And 
and you know we're gonna get deeper into this in a moment but but what's hilarious to me about this whole drama that played out in Florida about the smallmouth bass mostly in the 30s and 40s turns out that although smallmouth bass were stocked in in a lot of waters in Florida beginning in 1908 there is zero evidence that anybody ever caught one here yeah <laughs> zero <laughs> Zero evidence that they ever lived through the year mm-hmm. because they were planted as fingerlings. There's no evidence that they ever reached maturity. <laughs> they were all bait. <laughs> they were all bait. Exactly. Yeah. They were dropped there and, and they were stocking them in 10,000 at a time. So they're stocking them in some pretty good numbers because most of the lakes around here are just a couple thousand acres. Uh, so they're healthy numbers to stock perhaps, but, but they were all bait. They were all probably enormously lethargic in the water temperatures that we have here in Florida, especially in the, say, from April through uh, October. Um, and, and they were all bait. They all got gobbled up. Yep. And so these fish that everybody was thinking were giant smallmouths, because they fit the definition set by biologists, were, of course, actually largemouths. And we're, we're showing you some of the pictures of these fish that Walter Hardin and these other guys claimed. And you don't have to be an ichthyologist to know that these are largemouth bass. You don't have to do anything except look at, look at the pictures we are showing you now yeah. to know that these are not smallmouth bass. And yet the, the controversy, Terry, raged on. It was a huge, one of the fun things I experienced in, in researching this episode was how the the different outdoor fishing writers from the various newspapers around the state were handling this. You had guys like Rube Allen, who was a legendary Florida outdoor writer, saying, no, there are no smallmouth bass here. You yep. got a guy like Herb Mosher, who was the fishing editor of the Orlando Sentinel. Um, he, uh, I'm, I'm just going to break your heart again, Terry. It, it breaks Terry's heart that I have the Walter Harden book and he doesn't. <laughs> But, but get ready, Terry. Get ready. This is, uh, this is actually Herb Mosher's copy of yeah. Wildlife Magazine. I don't know why you have to abuse me like this. I mean, I'm going to have to talk to the HR person or something about this. <laughs> because... I'm actually in charge of <laughs> HR here at the Big Bass Podcast. <laughs> anyway, so here is, here is a picture of uh, a woman holding a an alleged uh, gigantic 12-pound, 10-ounce smallmouth bass that won a magazine's annual contest. 12-pound, 10-ounce smallmouth right there, of course. And this is Mosher's copy. He has come in here with a green ink and flagged this article. And down here at the bottom, I don't know if you can say it, see it very well, but he says, if this is our friend Microptus dolomieu, which is Latin for smallmouth bass, I am crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. It Mr. doesn't Mosher. get much better than that. I mean, come no. on. Oh, jeez. Um, but you had guys defending the smallmouth bass being in Florida right into the 1950s. Right into the 1950s. Saying, I don't know why they don't say there's a smallmouth bass here because I caught 17 of them yesterday. Yeah, and then when the ichthyologists would show up, they they aren't biting. 
<laughs> we can't get him to bite today. <laughs> every time, every time they said that. There's a great article in a, in a, a year later, exactly a year later, in the September 1949 issue of uh, Florida Wildlife Magazine. Um, a, a guy named Jack DeQuinn. He was the uh, chief fisheries biologist for the state at that time. And he wrote a cool article called, Is the Florida Smallmouth a Fable? And <laughs> I uh, ran into that one. <laughs> yeah. He, here's his great quote. My favorite quote from that article is this. He said, I cannot state definitely that there are no smallmouth bass in Florida. I can only say that neither I nor any other biologist or ichthyologist has seen one. <laughs> Beautiful line. I mean, yeah, at least the door open, right? You know. <laughs> it does because, well, he was smart enough and, and he was sensitive enough, I guess. And he also probably didn't want to be proven wrong in the off chance that somebody catches one uh, to realize that it's kind of like the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, you can prove it exists, but you can't really prove it doesn't exist. Yeah. You, it's difficult to prove that nullity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and just to, just to continue... To, to beat up poor Dr. Batiste here. Uh, the preeminent biologists of, of that time in the fisheries world were a couple of guys at the University of Michigan. And, and they wrote this treatise, uh, which was very influential in 1940, Hubs and Bailey. I have that. Okay, you got that one. But yeah. do you have this one? The 1949 one. I have the 49 one. Okay. Then uh, May, April 49, I think it was. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, February yeah, 49, February 49, but I'm sure it's okay. the same one. Yeah. Well, do you have, do you have Reeve Bailey's magazines from back in the no, day? No, I don't know. No, you oh, can oh. stop. You can oh. stop. Put a fork oh. in it, Ken. <laughs> in case you're wondering why I do the big bass podcast, it's just to break Terry's heart. Um, but he likes to see tears. (laughs) If you want to see Terry cry, just show him cool bass memorabilia that he doesn't have, but don't worry. He's going to have his comeuppance against me soon enough because he's got a lot of great stuff I've never even seen. Uh, But, but uh, two guys, um, Carl Hubbs and, and Reeve Bailey, they were the preeminent bass biologists of the era. And um, what they said kind of, kind of ruled the day back then and and they had caught wind of this florida controversy hadn't they well it was pretty stinky how could they not catch wind of it that's true (laughs) true enough i mean that draft from florida went all the way north up to michigan (laughs) careful careful now florida is the sunshine state it's the finest state in our union (laughs) oh yeah i i mean they essentially that that journal article from 49 essentially is the slam dunk. It is our door slam. You know, at the end of every one of our episodes, we have a door slam. Uh, slamming the lid on that on that case. And, uh, and that's exactly what they did with that. And in the proper, polite, yet stronghold uh, or strong arm type, you know, d- writing that you do in a journal like that when you're trying to prove your fact and tell someone else that they're, you know, a few bubbles shy of a, you know, being level or whatever the hell that, you know, saying is not plumb. Anyway, uh, they essentially 
wrote it out. I mean, they they nailed it. Yeah, I want to read a little of that language because I uh, ordinarily, oh, you know, yeah, Doctor Batisti, and he is a PhD in uh, in stuff I can't even pronounce. Stands but, for uh, a public high school diploma. No, he's he's got a PhD in engineering. He's super bright. I'm not so bright, and I don't usually handle the uh, technical journals very well. But this is one that I read with great interest, and I want to share a little bit of it with you. Um, this is from uh, Bailey and Hubs, the Black Basses of Florida, with description of a new species. This is the new species that they identified was the Suwannee bass. But we're digging into their comments here about the smallmouth, of course. Yep. New material from the southeast makes possible a considerable expansion of our knowledge of the systematics of the genus Micropterus. In this paper, we discuss the long-debated status of the northern smallmouth bass as an inhabitant of Florida waters and conclude that this species has not become established there and that the smallmouths of reputed record size were largemouth bass. Boom. Be a, yeah, boom. <laughs> There's the door slam by Bailey and Hubs. Um, and here's how they conclude uh, their article. Um we therefore recommend the removal of Florida fish from consideration for the title of world's record smallmouth bass. Yes. We, that had to be a dagger in the heart of Walter Harden. Uh, I don't think we, he had a heart. Well, hey, now, hey, now, let's not, let's not beat up St. <laughs> Walter here. We leave to others the decision as to what fish properly deserves the distinction of holding the record, but stress here the importance of accurate identification. Amen. So, yeah, they, they, Reeves and Bailey, I mean, they're, to this day, they may be regarded as probably the most groundbreaking and influential biologists in, in the world of bass fishing. Well, it, it, they didn't just say that, I mean, this was kind of a sidetrack thing for them, you know, this whole smallmouth thing in Florida. I mean, they were, they were busy, you know, naming, you know, five, six other types, discovering five or six other types of black bass. I mean, that was their life's work. And I think, what, there's 14 or 16 different species of black bass right now. And, and a lot of that work has to do with their groundbreaking work in the 30s and the 40s and 50s and 60s. Oh, it, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, uh, uh, Hubs, who was the older of the two, he had uh, his name has been given to five genera and 22 different individual species of fish. That's insane. Yeah, plus different kinds of uh, birds and mollusks and crabs and arthropods, insects, algae. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's outrageous. I mean, they're, these guys are, are beyond legit. They were groundbreaking. When they said something, mm -hmm. uh, the fisheries world, the rank-and-file anglers... Uh, the record keepers, like Field and Stream, everybody set up and took notice uh, of what they were, what they were saying. Oh yeah, absolutely, and and it was gone, you know, it, just it was gone. like that. It was in the record book one day, and the next day it was gone. And our buddy Walter Harton is left crying, left crying, <laughs> because the very next time, as Terry says here, the very next time the records come out from Field and Stream. He ain't in there. Instead, all they say is previous record disqualified. They pick up a 10-pound 8-ounce fish by Owen Smith. 
I think a year or so later, in 1955, David Hayes claims the record with 11.15 out of Dale Hollow. And, yep. uh, and that's been the record ever most since. of the time. No, not ever since. Well, that's, well yeah, we don't <laughs> want to give that show away. We're not going to give that show away. That's, uh, that's episode two of the Hayes trilogy. But uh, uh, Walter Harden, who's been guiding and, and doing all these things and, and, and catching these giant smallmouth bass, he's, he's done. His lures are taken out of production. The baits that he's been designing for Hedden are gone now. Uh, I guarantee you, being, being discounted and thrown out of the record books was not good for book sales. That's why this book is so hard to find. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but he did stay involved in, in, in the outdoors field and, and in fishing and boating. Uh, he opened up Hardin's Boat Sales right next to Hardin's Barbecue. And uh, his ads of the day said, if you can't make a deal with us, you're not in the market for a motor. <laughs> or you're not hungry. <laughs> or you're not hungry, yeah. I mean, you could have some barbecue. Oh, um, man. And in, in, on January 11th, 1957... At uh, Connellsville State Hospital in Pennsylvania, after an illness of several days, uh, Walter Harden died. And he's buried in Green Ridge Memorial Park in Connellsville, Pennsylvania. And one day, Terry, if I find myself in that area, I am going to go pay my respects to the former world record smallmouth holder. Have him sign your book. (laughs) That was was uncalled for. (laughs) You're just, you're just upset because you don't have the book. <laughs> yes, I am. Admit it. it. That's it. It's all it's all about who has the book, who doesn't have the book. Oh, what it's man. worth, folks. Yeah, I mean, that, this that's is the crazy. only one of these I've ever seen. So, but I'm, uh, you're all into this genealogy and and you know, Scientology and stuff. Uh, new, numbers. Sci- no. no. <laughs> um, what? How old was he when he died? He was born in 1904, died in 57. Uh, oh, so, so he's 52. 53. 52, oh, 53. He died, he died in January 57, so he's 52 years old. Young man. I, I, th- I thought I read somewhere that he was pushing his car out of the snow and had a heart attack or something. But all the obituaries of the time say that he died after an illness of several days. Now, maybe that was uh, a result of a heart attack or something. I'm not sure. I don't know exactly right. what killed the man. But I, so, I hey, think this. I think getting it broken heart, being yanked, broken heart, being you know yanked out of the record books is what killed him. You know, cheaters uh, never prosper. Cheaters, <laughs> you know that. Okay, that's that's where we got to go next, Doctor Batista. That's where we got to go next. Yeah. Because I'm going to say to you, sir, that uh, Walter Harden is not to blame here. It is not his fault that he had the world record smallmouth bass. It is not his fault that other people claimed world record smallmouth bass from Florida even before he did. It has nothing to do with Walter Harden here. It has to do with the biologists. It doesn't even have to do with field and stream. Uh, they were going by what the biologists of the day were calling a smallmouth bass. And that's your take? Yes. My take is the dude was from Pennsylvania. He had been catching smallmouth bass, I would hope, his whole fishing life up in Pennsylvania. Smallmouth does not look like a largemouth. Um, I mean, it, it should have not, the sniff test right off the bat, you bring a fish in the boat, you look at it, is it green or is it bronze? I mean, it, it's, it's to me, it's that simple. 
Now, he was sending these fish to ichthyologists. I, yeah, okay, so I'm going to say that, A, it's, it's part of Harden's fault because he didn't know what the hell he was catching. And it was the ichthyologists. I mean, he probably sent it to guys that got D and D's in, in college and, you know, <laughs> were <laughs> ichthyologists on the, on the side. Yeah. Blame it on the American education system. Well, I, don't blame it on the education system. Just blame it on pure stupidity. I mean, that's – I just – I can't ever put myself in a situation where I confuse the smallmouth with a largemouth. Never. Now, I've confused myself between a smallmouth and a meanmouth. But that, you were born in the 1960s, decades after. To pot-smoking parents. Decades after, <laughs> the smallmouth bass had been redefined by Bailey and Hubs. You benefited from the work done by Bailey and Hubs. Harden suffered at the hands of Bailey he and Hubs. He shouldn't have. I mean, I mean, to me, there's just, there is no mistaking a smallmouth from a largemouth. It just, there is... A, how can you mistake it? And that has nothing to do with the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm a product of the 60s uh, or pr actually a product of probably the 70s is a more accurate statement. But there has never been a time in my life that I looked at, at, at a fish and didn't know it was a largemouth or a smallmouth. Ever. But, but you and, also And if did... you folks out there, okay, anybody watching this, please leave a, a, a comment below. So we can kind of, you know, get get the who the winner of this argument is. <laughs> Ken's being too kind for once. He's he's being kind to Harden. Why can't he be that kind to me? I, mean, I, I have the I have the book. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've, I've got to defend the man. <laughs> but, but no, I, I I'm I am sympathetic to Harden. He saw people catching these world record smallmouth bass, and and he realized he was catching larger fish that had all the same qualities that had the same scale counts that had the same dorsal spine that had all the same definitions of a smallmouth bass that these 10, 11 pound fish had, but you're telling him he doesn't have a smallmouth bass and they do. That's not, but how fair. do you know that that's how that happened? I mean, that's kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of twisting the plot, so to speak, to, to make it fight or, to make it well, match your argument. Keep um, in mind also that Harden is aware. Harden is aware because it happened. It happened after he came down to Florida to do guiding. It happened as recently as 1930 that there were bass, smallmouth bass stocked in Florida. And as early as 1908. Right. So he goes down there. And you he know, may have from... been expecting to see smallmouth bass. But, hey, these are not smallmouth bass. Pennsylvania style. These are smallmouth bass. This is what Florida does to smallmouth bass. Have you ever seen a tourist in Florida, Terry? <laughs> they wear white belts and and socks with sandals. Yeah, I know. I, I but they're I'm still a homo sapiens. <laughs> they're still probably homo sapiens. <laughs> but that's debatable. Uh huh. Yeah, I just I I I can't give him any slack. That's just my opinion. It's worth what you paid for it. <laughs> well, man, I'm, I'm so glad we have delved into the Walter Harden story and the story of Florida smallmouth bass because 
like I said, it's my favorite book in my whole bass fishing library. I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of titles. And that's yep. number one with me. And and living in Florida and knowing that the world record smallmouth came from here for at least a period of, of 15, 18 years, I think that's fascinating. Um, and and to dig in and, and get to the bottom of it on some level is really cool, even if we may disagree as to who's wearing the white hat here and who's got the black hat. Uh, I've still had a blast talking about it. Oh, it's been a, an awesome conversation. Uh, I know doing my research, I learned a heck of a lot more. I mean, I had always seen it in the record books, um, you know, and had always just dismissed it as stupidity. Uh, <laughs> I just, well, I'm being honest. Well, right? <laughs> well now you're and, adding a level. Now you're adding malevolence to it. Now you're saying okay. that he was. Uh, that's he that's what I am. I'm a malevolent bastard. <laughs> But, yeah, you know, but I, I had never really done the anywhere close to the research that you had done, uh, you know, and, and so I learned a lot. I mean, it, it was a, it was a real it was to me, it was worthwhile, uh, you know, spending, you know, a few days digging deep and uh, talking to you and stuff like that and learning, learning about this fish. It was or the, the smallmouth in Florida. So. Yeah, you know, uh, as we dig into these uh, stories for the Big Bass podcast, one of the fun things is, I think Terry's going to agree with me on this, is that we think we know these stories. We think we know. Yeah. Because we've read a lot about them, read a little bit about them, heard a little bit about them, maybe even witnessed some of the stuff. But when you do the deeper dive, there's always a lot more to it, and it's uh, even more fascinating. Yeah, the little gems that you pick up that you never would have thought are – I mean, and, and – both Ken and I feel the same way, and I'm sure there's, you know, a lot of you folks out there watching this and listening to this that, that agree with us. It's a, when you find that one little thing that that answers the question that you've always had, uh, it's like you've struck gold or something. It's 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 meaningful. So. It's special, and and I don't get that that feeling and that kind of excitement uh, very often. So that's uh, why it's such a thrill uh, to do this show, and uh, I guess that's a wrap. For this episode yeah. of the Big Bass Podcast, I'm Ken Duke, and on behalf of Terry Batisti and our producer, Nathan Benson, I want to thank you for joining us. We really hope you enjoyed the program, and if you did, please rate, share, and review. I hear that's important. Anything at all you can do to help us spread the word and grow our audience is much appreciated. We do this show because we love the sport and its history, but we'd also appreciate the support of sponsors. So if you're interested in sponsoring the show, uh, please get in touch. Our email addresses are below if you're watching us. And if you're listening to the podcast, you can reach us at Ken at TheBigBassPodcast.com, Terry at TheBigBassPodcast.com, or Nathan at TheBigBassPodcast.com. Come on back next week. We'll have a new show about another big bass, including information that you will not. And I promise you, you cannot find anywhere else. Nope. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs>